might we just, um, sorry, I'm, I'm not as tall. There we are. That serves me right for teasing Jacob the other week, doesn't it? Let's pay back. There we go. Why don't we pray just before we uh, come to God's word together again, shall we? Father, we thank you as we've just sung that you've made us a way by which we can be saved. And as we've journeyed through this letter to the Romans, that's what Paul has unveiled for us. And he's shown us the depth of our need, the depth of our brokenness and sin and shame. And yet also he's beginning now, as we look to this morning's passage, to show us the wealth of the riches of your glory and grace towards us who once were enemies, but now are not. And so, Spirit, I ask that you might speak to us now as we come this morning weary, tired, broken, our hearts and our minds divided in so many ways, pulled in different directions, that, Spirit, you might grasp our attention this morning and that you might minister your words to our hearts this morning we thank you you don't leave us as orphans you don't leave us in the world without your voice without knowing your call upon us without knowing who we are and how we're to live in light of all you've done but lord you speak through your words so spirit ask that you might do that this morning through me and through these words that we've read together If you keep that passage open there before you in in whatever way you can sort of do that, I think you will find that helpful. And I want to share with you just three things this morning here from these first 11 verses that are all about how we are freed while yet an enemy. And in these 11 verses, we'll see that we're offered peace with God, that we can find peace through sufferings, And that there's peace for enemies. Look at that verse 1 there with me. Paul begins there by saying, therefore. And we've moved from Paul arguing that we're saved by faith. I mean, he'll continue to do that. And that will continue to be the backdrop of all he's saying. And he'll come back to that and share how everything that he's saying to us, how all these implications for actual everyday life come from this essential truth. He's argued the idea that we're saved by faith. But now he moves to show us the effects of this. And if you like, there's something of a mini-series for the next sort of couple of chapters where he shows the effects of this saving faith. The biggest one of them here being freedom. And so we'll see the different things that we're freed for and freed from. But this morning we see that we're freed while an enemy. He'll also show with us how we're freed by a better man in the next So the section of chapter 5 into chapter 6, we'll find that we're freed for a new life, that we're freed for a new master, that we're freed from the law in chapter 7 and freed for a new fight. So now we begin to see what Paul's gospel would do in our lives. And so this little section here, just these first two verses where we see peace with God, this is really, in many ways, a heading that will sort of structure and bunch together all of this material in this next section. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's a really important thing that Paul is assuming there and that he's putting across for us, and that's this, that the default position 
between humanity and God is hostility. That talk that perhaps you might have heard over uh, time within church of needing a relationship with God, needing a relationship with Christ, of course, is absolutely true, but it doesn't quite get to the full sentiment. Everybody has a relationship with God. The point is, the default position is that your relationship with God is hostility. It's not positive. It's not even neutral. But it is at war. It's not just having a relationship with God. It's having a positive one. How can this be? Well, you know, whether or not you're raging at him, or you're quietly nodding along politely, disobedience rings louder. Perhaps if you're a parent or a teacher, you might know this, especially with children. If you ask them to do something and they disobey, despite being sort of very good, very polite, very nice, in lots of ways, you've asked them a thing that is good, that is fair, that is right, does it really matter how they disobey you? In fact, actually, does it not make it more frustrating when someone pays you lip service They say they'll do it, they give all the right noises, and then they don't do it. Not everyone may be openly raging against God, but it doesn't mean they're not hostile to God. And yet, Paul here, having built up the case for our guilt, as he's done, through Christ, the arms are laid down, and peace is restored. And there's two things we can see here about uh, peace with God here. Because there's two different ways that that verse could be translated. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's that little phrase there, we have peace with God, that could be translated in a couple of different ways. And the honest answer is that translators don't quite know which is the one to go with. And they both say slightly different things. And we find actually that Peace is both something that's declared, but it's also, secondly, something that needs to be experienced. Firstly, peace is something that's declared. See, it might be translated, as it probably is, especially in the ESV, and it makes more sense in this way, that we have peace. That is a declaration. That is something that has happened, that has been declared over you. We know in the past and in the present the fragile and transitory nature of human peace, even just on our own continent. You can see that in some of the historic speeches. World War II broke out despite the optimism that peace would reign. Neville Chamberlain returned from Munich in September 1938, declaring, my good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister's return from Germany, bringing peace with honour. I believe it's peace for our time. He hoped that he'd brought the world back from the brink of war. But just less than a year later, in September 3, 1939, he announced a declaration of war against Germany. He said, you can imagine what a bitter blow it is to me that all my long struggle to win peace has failed. Yet I cannot believe that there's anything more or anything different that I could have done and that would have been more successful. And yet, even at the close of the war, we find the same passing nature of peace. Churchill declares, May 8th, 1945, this is your victory. 
He says that this is the greatest day. In all our long history, we've never seen a greater day than this, he says. But again, just a few months later, March 5th, 1946, he gives his Iron Curtain speech. Concludes his thoughts by saying, whatever conclusions may be drawn from these facts, and facts they are, this is certainly not the liberated Europe we fought to build up, nor is this one which contains the essentials of permanent peace. Peace, even just on our continent alone, has proven to be fragile and transitory. As soon as it's here, it seems to go. And yet here, peace with God is declared. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's declared. It's yours to keep. He's not going to go back on it. He won't rethink it. The war is over in Christ. And yet the reality is we often live as though we're not at peace at all. That perhaps we're at best at a ceasefire, or maybe at the worst, on the brink of an ambush. As if God is constantly waiting for you to slip up, to get you back. But peace is declared. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, peace is experienced because that same verse might be translated and there's more manuscript evidence for this. Let us have peace. So that what Paul is saying is he's calling you to enter an experience of peace. Because just because we're declared at peace doesn't mean that you always experience that. And yet, we need to. We know this to be true about other things in life, don't we? Think about marriage. We declare our love on our wedding day. And yet our partner needs to experience that in tangible actions and words. It's not enough just to say it. You do need to actually experience that. Or perhaps even just in the world of work. You can say that you're the best salesperson, but you're going to need to actually let people experience that and prove that through your performance. It's not enough just to say it, is it? It's true about many things in life. It can be declared, but it doesn't mean that's what you actually wind up experiencing in yourself. So it may be that Paul is saying, let us have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That requires work, doesn't it? Moving from a place of it being something declared to you to actually feeling it. John F. Kennedy, speaking about peace at the United Nations, said, peace is a daily, a weekly, a monthly process, gradually changing opinions, slowly eroding old barriers, quietly building new structures. And whoever undramatic the pursuit of peace, that pursuit must go on. We know that to be true in terms of geopolitics, but it's true as much in our own experience of peace with God. We must work at it to actually know that experience. It requires us changing our thinking to come in line with the gospel truth. Through whom we're told here, verse 2, that we've obtained access, the word there is admission, that we've been brought close by faith. Faith grants access, but only faith. We know that's not quite how our world works, is it? We have a government at present that actually, if you have a certain amount of money, you can get more access. You can, if you would 
possibly really want to do such a thing. Play a game of tennis with Boris Johnson if you have the right amount of money. And if you don't, well, then you won't. Well, with God, faith alone brings access. And look at the results there, verse 2. In which we stand and we rejoice in hope. It's those two things. We stand and we rejoice in hope. See, faith brings a soft heart, but strong legs. Rebellion, on the other hand, is all about having a hard heart and very weak legs. Through the work of Jesus, entered by faith, we're made right with God, and peace with God is restored. It's both something that's declared over you, and yet it's something you also need to experience. We're granted peace with God. But secondly, look at verses 3 to 5 there. Because what we see now is a peace that comes even through sufferings. Verse 1 to 2 might seem somewhat idyllic, maybe a bit idealistic. Maybe this isn't really true to everyday life, Paul. Maybe you're not very practical after all. And so he addresses what everyday life can so often look like for us. But look at what he's doing. He's speaking in three tenses here. He's speaking in the past, speaking about the present, and speaking about the future too. He tells us, in the past, we have been justified. It's a past action that has already happened. He speaks of us in the present, standing. And then he looks to the future, that we would rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, the point about all of this is that these truths are to align our thinking as we go through suffering. Paul's idea of peace with God, declared for us and over us, does not mean that the Christian life is one free of trial and sufferings. He tells us, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, which presumes that he and for they, the Roman readers, just like us, do experience sufferings. And so he's moved from the picture of the future view of God's glory, that we rejoice in hope, verse 2, to the present view of intense suffering. So he tells us here, suffering produces endurance. It's going beyond the point of your present capacity in which you grow endurance. And it counters some of the nonsensical sort of Christianese uh, motivational thinking that sometimes pervades our culture, doesn't it? There's this myth that's perpetuated here that God won't give you more than you can handle. It's like a spiritual Big Mac. People like the idea, it looks good on the poster, looks so appetizing, but after you eat it, you feel pretty bad. You find that you're not really full up. And you question your decision-making, after all. The Christian life is one in which we do endure suffering, and yet suffering produces endurance. Yeah, actually, we know this even just from the world around us. We see it in the realm of sports. This is uh, Adi Adipitan. He was a Paralympian uh, basketball player uh, for Great Britain and now a TV presenter as well. He was born in Nigeria uh, and contracted polio at just 15 months old. And when he was three, he moved to the UK, uh, but his family had to live apart for, for a long time as they couldn't uh, manage to all make it over. 
And so his parents had to fight to get him into a mainstream school uh, with his disability too. And when he did, he was one of, of only two black children there. And so he knew what it felt like to maybe feel uh, a little bit different uh, to everybody else and the only child with a disability. This is someone who knows a thing or two about adversity and about challenging circumstances. And he says about the here, I don't recognize anything in my life as a setback at all. I don't see obstacles. I see objectives and I see opportunities to meet them. As a kid, the only time I felt disabled was when I walked past the mirror and saw myself walking differently to everyone else. Even today, I don't see myself as a disabled person. Walking the miles to school every day was more of a challenge for me than others, but I always embraced that challenge. It made me stronger. And there's the bit that particularly interested me. It made me stronger. Somehow, without the experience of that adversity, he feels he might not have become as strong as he is today. Somehow, we may not feel it now as we go through it, but suffering makes us stronger than we are today. For you to possibly endure, you have to be allowed to undergo suffering. We know this in parenting too, to come back to that. Weirdly, there's this counterintuitive thing where the worst thing you can do for your child is provide everything. Why? Well, because you're withholding the opportunities for them to learn perseverance, self-sufficiency, self-confidence, and self-care. And the result is that they will wilt at any resistance they face because you have actually socially engineered them to have that weakness, that dependency. Children need the chance to explore, to try, to fail, to fall, to hurt, to fix themselves, to problem-solve to get stronger, to get confident, to get resilient. And God is a good father, much better parent than any of us, much better parent than I. He is gracious and good, and his purposes are good in allowing you to not be shielded from everything so that you may endure. Suffering produces endurance. But he gives a connected thought. Look at verse 4. Endurance produces character. The word there is about being approved through a test. One who stands the test. Endurance produces character. Sir Alex Ferguson, the football manager, writes of uh, trying to find young players. He says... He outlines some of the challenging upbringings of many of the players that he'd worked with, from poverty, broken homes, crime, lack of opportunities, these things. He says, I have an abiding belief about the virtues of tapping the hunger and drive, or another way we could put it, I think, is character, that can be found in people who have had tough upbringings. If I had to pick drive, or we could put it character, or talent as the most potent fuel, it would be the former. There's something about persevering through suffering that produces character. You know, in your work, in your life, your character preaches a more compelling and a lasting sermon than any words or talents ever will for you. And it's your character that shows what you really believe to be true 
in the toughest moments. About God, about you, about other people, and about the world. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. The one who can endure through pain, through loss, through failure, is hopeful, not pessimistic. The life of faith then should be one where we trust God to follow his call, to have a go, to try. Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player of all time, reflects on this. And everybody thinks when they think of him, all the great wins, all the great achievements, and certainly there's plenty of those. But Michael Jordan spoke of the power of being willing to fail that had made him successful. He said, I've lost almost 300 games 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. You know, if you take the shot, you may fail. But if you don't take the shot, you can never succeed. The life of faith is one of hopeful optimism, not pessimism it's one where we follow god's call where we have a go where we try where the fear of failure doesn't stop us from stepping out in faith hope doesn't put us to shame paul tells us verse five because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit you know often i think what stops us stepping out in faith to pursue god's call is a sense that we may not like to admit maybe a bit embarrassing perhaps but a sense we may ultimately lose out we may find at the other end of trusting god we're shortchanged he didn't deliver didn't come through it wasn't worth it faith trusts god to step out to respond to his call. There's no way that any of those doubts are true. He has already given us his spirit and will all one day inherit all the promise in him. We saw some of that last week, but even just in that verse, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And yet, all of that said, it doesn't mean it's not a fight. It is. Why Paul puts it a little bit later on, chapter 12, that we're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, to change the way that we think, that we have to fight to do that, that that's not natural in many ways, that we have to take command and ownership of our thoughts. A great example of this fight for the right mentality. This is uh, Lane Beachley. She is a seven-time, I think it is, uh, surfing world champion. Um, Sadly, uh, she was adopted very early on in her life. She was uh, the result of a sexual assault. And so her mother, by her family, was, was forced to give her up for adoption. She was very small growing up and spent the first six weeks of her life in intensive care. Her adoptive mother then died when she was age seven, and she was often bullied at school uh, for the fact that she was adopted, yet went on to have immense success in her field. In fact, she is the only surfer, male or female, to have won six consecutive world championships. She reflects on her story. She says, I've shown I can succeed through struggle. 
And so this means the only way to succeed is through struggle. And yet, that didn't mean that it wasn't a fight for Lane to maintain that mentality. Actually, one of the most interesting things is seeing a few of her diary excerpts. And it reflects some of this struggle that she must have had very regularly. The first entry here. All I want to do is run into my mother's arms and cry and feel protected and secure away from the harm of the world. Life gets harder as you get older. Sure, I'm a fear confronter, a lover of challenge. But at the moment, I just don't have the energy or the strength. So all I want to do is run and hide. I'm scared, tired, exhausted, actually, unorganized, wanting to give it all up and leave this place. Second entry. Then I reach a level of sanity and perspective. Life really isn't all that bad. My perseverance, determination, dedication, commitment, passion, enthusiasm are human qualities we all possess, but sometimes we allow our brains to get in the way, much like mine is now. A few days later. I'm currently making the choice to be scared, unhappy, tired, and upset. I'm a product of my choices. We all are. Then a few days later. I'm lucky that I find such solace in surfing, so I guess I should be more thankful than scared. I'm human. I choose these emotions. Everything happens for a reason. Every mistake is a learning experience. It is a fight to maintain the right mentality for us. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul encourages us. And so it is all about what we tell ourselves. Here's a reflection here from Paul David Tripp, pastor, theologian, counselor on this very thing. This is from his book, uh, Do You Believe? He says, as a being made in the image of God, you're a meaning maker. You are rational, which means you have a built-in desire to know, to understand, and to be free of things that don't make any sense to you. This means that you live life based on the facts, of your, not on the facts of your experience, but rather on your particular interpretation of the facts. It also means that you are the most influential person in your life because you talk to yourself more than anyone else does. The things you say to yourself every day are profoundly important because they structure the way you live. See, theological reflection is a daily necessity. We all do it every day. It's reflecting on and interpreting life out of who God is, what God has done because of who he is, who we are because of what he's done, and how we should live because of who he's made us to be. You are always doing that. You are never not living life through that grid. It is more a case instead of, is your grid good or bad? If you're not actively working on that, what you're telling yourself, the narrative that you're living life through, is de facto bad for you. It is all about being transformed by the renewal of our mind. It's why we need others too, isn't it? It's why you need a good friend who can speak to you. Who can speak the words of the gospel into your life. So I'll leave you with that thought to think about who do you have right now who can speak to you? We see peace with God. We see peace through sufferings. And then lastly here, we see peace for enemies. And it feels maybe a little bit like Paul is on a slight tangent here, but it's not, and he'll come back on course in a moment. And Paul gives perhaps the most shocking element of the peace that God gives, and that is that it's given to those who are his enemies. Look at verse 6. While we were still weak, 
where it speaks about without having the necessary resources, whilst we didn't have the ability to do what's right, whilst we didn't have the ability to save ourselves, to make ourselves right, to fix ourselves, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. See, Jesus doesn't save us after we first got our act together. Or once we've shown him some potential. Or once we've turned the corner. But before. We could put it in a couple of different ways. That Jesus saves us at our worst. No matter how bad your sin may be. His grace is always stronger. The light always overcomes the darkness. There's a great uh, scene in the film Spinal Tap. I think it's great because I'm into guitars. If you're not, perhaps perhaps you won't be. But still, it's comical enough for you, for you to sort of watch it uh, later on today. He's showing all of his guitars off to this sort of journalist. And uh, he shows off his amplifier. And he's custom sort of built it so that they all uh, go to 11. So he asks him, well, you know, why don't you make 10? be louder and then they could just go to 10 and you know he just doesn't understand it uh you know character uh typed again that we're, we're not always the brightest guitarists but uh, he just says well you know these go to 11 it's it's one louder god's grace is always one louder than your sin no matter how deep it may be god's grace goes louder he saves us at our worst But also, and it's important you hear this too, he saves you at what you think is your best. Sometimes it's maybe easier to accept the first idea that he could save you at your worst because it's just this overwhelming sense of grace and mercy and compassion. But he saves you at what you think is your best. The moments that you think would be on your highlight reel, you just don't realize how broken your motivations and desires really were. And how bad even your best ever was. The good news, he saves you at your worst, and he saves you at your best too. And this is groundbreaking, and Paul knows this. Look at verse 7. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. The point isn't that there's anybody who can be righteous before God, but the point is to say how groundbreaking this is, that perhaps, perhaps there might be someone who is sort of seen as generally so good that people might just think about giving their life for them, but it's not often, because people aren't really in general that selfless. They're not that selfless to sacrifice themselves. For that to even possibly happen, it would have to be a truly extraordinary person. Perhaps for someone who really is that great, maybe some people would. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling, while we were still rejecting God, while we're still hating him, that is when he moved to save us. This is the total opposite of the culture around us, isn't it? You know, in our culture, if somebody transgresses the values of the culture, the collected wisdom is you should have nothing to do with them. They should be persona non grata. You should have to be ready to defend and cut any ties you possibly have because you might be guilty by association even with someone who has transgressed 
the values. But here, while we were still rebelling, while we were still rejecting him, while we were still hating him, Christ died for us. See, Paul shows the effect of God's love on that experience in verses 3 to 5. And the thinking there that shapes that experience, that God's love is redemptive. It changes us. It transforms us. It's given when we don't deserve it. Since, therefore, we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And look, he's speaking both in the past and the future there, isn't he? We've been justified by his blood, by his death. Much more shall we be, into the future, saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the wrath of God that Paul spoke about in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Gave us great details about some of the ways that is manifested. Because we've been justified in the past through Christ's death, once for all, sins, we have hope for the future that we will be saved from the wrath of God in the judgment. Because Jesus will defend us in that moment. He'll be our attorney before the Father. How can Paul say this? Well, verse 10 here shows what his claims in verse 9 relates to verses 6 to 8, just a bit earlier on. He's continuing as well, actually, really from chapter 4, verse 25. He's speaking here about death and resurrection, atonement, justification. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, that's talking about death, that's talking about his atonement, that Jesus dies in your place for your sins... Much more now that we're reconciled, our relationship is repaired because we always have had a relationship with God. The problem is that it's turned sour. Not that we don't have one. Everybody has a relationship with God, but now it's been reconciled through Christ's death for us in our place. Sins have been covered. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? It's thinking about his resurrection See, justification and salvation there. Being made right and being spared. Atonement and resurrection. Cross and ascension. So more than that, we also rejoice. How can we not? How can we not? When we know the depth of what he's done there in verses 10 to 11. While we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his own son. Much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When we know that, we have peace and rejoice. We stand and rejoice in hope, as he's told us in verses 1 to 2. And yet there's an important place to end here, isn't there? Because the peace of Christ for the follower of Jesus isn't self-satisfying. The power of this peace is how it reproduces itself. Because we're called by Christ to love our enemies. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. 
just as God has done here. Martin Luther King, thinking about this command, says this. There's a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this. That love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them. And they can't stand it too long. Or they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings. And sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. You know, we can love enemies uh, around us with redemptive love that sculpts a friend from the cast of an enemy, only really if you've experienced the redemptive love as an enemy that Christ has made friend. John puts it, First John 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You'll not be able to share what you've not seen and savoured first. Our failed and often fickle efforts to love, evidence that we don't functionally believe that Jesus loves us as enemies. We think that he'll love us if we get our acts together, if we can clean ourselves up first, that he'll love us when we become a bit lovable, not while still an enemy. 1 John 4 verse 10, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a fancy technical word for saying that Jesus came and paid the penalty that was needed to be paid in order to repair a relationship. You know that sort of uh, work that needs to happen in order to get things back on good terms. Jesus' command to love our enemies isn't given just because it's a good idea, though it is, but it's given because he already has. He's full of integrity, you see. He, he doesn't ask you to do something he's not already done. He doesn't do that. We do that, I do that, but he doesn't. He only ever asks you to do something he's done. He's loved his enemies. Not the world, not the Pharisees condemning him, not the crowds rejecting him, not Pilate trying to wash his hands of him. Not the soldiers crucifying him, nor the criminal mocking him. The enemy in mind is us, is me, it is you. He loved us while we did not love him. He loves those groups too. But there can be that wonderful way of trying to distance ourselves from what Jesus is doing to us directly. The gospel is more than an answer to your personal distress. We'll do that, doubtless. But the gospel provides the deep, the systemic redemption that our society needs and is longing for. Why is the world not at peace? Question many of us are reflecting on, isn't it? 
because we don't know what it is to be at peace with our maker. If we don't know peace with God, we will never be at peace with one another. And so the most transformative action to discrimination, dysfunction and discontent in our world would be to discover the love of Christ for us, though enemies, and so to live with one another. Jesus so loves you and frees you. And out of that peace and freedom, he calls you to release others. Wrongly, the gospel generally, Paul's writings specifically, are portrayed as being theoretical. The sort of reflections of a Hightower theologian, he doesn't know much about everyday life. There is nothing more deeply practical to your life and to the life of our society than knowing peace with God and so living. You find peace with God. You're freed, though once an enemy, through faith, through the work of Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's pray and then we'll sing our closing song together. Father God, we confess, confess myself, that especially over the course of the last two, two and a half years, of all the words that might describe my demeanor, that might describe my life, my heart, my soul, would peace be right up there? Probably not. Probably might be a lot of other things, but would peace be one of the uppermost? Perhaps not. Lord, we thank you on the one hand for the glorious security it is that your peace is declared over us. That for those who are in Christ, for those who are trusting in your finished work, who are trusting that you have died once for all for our sins in our place, that we might go free, that peace is declared over us. We have peace with God through our Lord Christ Jesus. And yet, Lord, we ask that you might help us to have a greater experience of your peace in our life. Help us, Lord, to keep our minds in the right place. May we be transformed by the renewal of our minds, reflecting on the truth of your word, not being distracted by the doubts that we experience in the world. Lord, we thank you for having done this for us when we have not deserved it. We know all too well, if we're honest, our inability to earn that from you. Thank goodness that it is not dependent on what we've done, but on what you have done. And Holy Spirit, we pray that as you lead us to a place of greater experience of your peace, through your finished work and your son, that you might make us those who can go and share peace with others in our world. We live in a fractious and anxious time in which it's just so easy to fall out and to just not see eye to eye. And we know that sense of division in our world so clearly. 
So, Father, help us to reflect the glorious truth of your gospel, of those at peace with you, and those called and sent to go and to share that message of hope and that experience of hope, of peace and joy in Christ. We thank you for all that you have given to us. May we, Lord, learn to experience that to a greater depth and degree, we pray. We ask these things for our good and for your glory in the world in which you've placed us. Amen. I can invite you to um, stand in a moment and we'll sing a closing.